According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As the screen says, you can turn to uh, John chapter 8, where we are in the midst of verses 21 through 59. 21 through 59. It's a little bit of an artificial division. The light of the world message in verses 12 through 20. Uh, is counted as a episode, uh, episode three in the this portion of our harmony, and then it moves on into the very next verse, and and describes that as a separate event. There's really not that much of a break in its context, however, in between verse 20 and verse 21, where then he said again to them, and and you even notice that there uh, are some breaks. For instance, after verse 30. So Jesus was saying, and then verse 34, where Jesus answered, and it just the whole chapter uh, comprises a string of events that consisted of messages that Jesus spoke, and then the reaction to those messages that typically then launched into a follow-up message. And so it really is one after another after another, and I suppose separating out the uh, the light of the world portion of this uh stretch is fine in verses 12 through 20 i'm just kind of curious as to why they didn't separate other chunks of the of the chapter as it were in uh, the way they did but that's all right it's not my harmony it's simply the one i'm adapting Uh, someday maybe i'll write my own harmony and then uh, i'll break up these 39 verses into smaller bite-sized portions or i'll put the light of the world message in with the rest of this and consider it all one great big chapter All right, John chapter 8. He said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. The statement he makes in verse 21 includes hamartia, sin in the singular. When he restates it in verse 24, twice in verse 24, he says you will die in your sins, plural. And so we've been careful to observe the singular sin, which references the estate, the position, the lost estate in Adam. Each one of us is born in the sphere of sin. That is the fallen estate of Adam. We also, however, are those who have performed sins, plural, in terms of our personal deeds, those which have missed the mark and fallen short of the glory of God. So we are sinners by uh, both position and experience, or I think... um, uh, Maybe it was, who was it that said we are sinners by nature, choice, and practice? Something like that. I think I stole that from uh, somewhere. I forget. I don't, I don't always footnote my, my thievery when I steal neat uh, quotations from Bible teachers. I think that one was Billy Graham, though. Sinners by nature, choice, and practice. All right. So the Jews were saying to him, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. So they are befuddled and confused let's take a moment for silent prayer so that we're not befuddled and confused we want to be filled with the holy spirit prepared to handle spiritual truth shall we pray dear father we do thank you for the truth of your word and for the privilege and blessing that belongs to us as the recipients of your grace upon grace provision father 
this morning we have received your abundant grace provision, uh, permitting us the blessing and opportunity to assemble together. Uh, Father, we thank you for the two prayer meetings that have already taken place and now for this Bible teaching. Father, we ask that all things done might be done for the glory of your Son, for uh, his eternal glory and for your infinite good pleasure. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, work on some flexibility here. I feel like roaming. I'm holding a Bible in my hand and using borrowed equipment. Substitute engineer back there at the sound desk. So the word for today is flexibility. Flexibility. And then we will... What's that? Flexibility has a Strong's number. I'll look it up for you if you like. The definition of flexibility, it says, the opposite of Pastor Bob. Look up inflexibility in my pictures in there. All right. No, Michael Dell is supposed to be at my house today. Either him or somebody who works for him, I expect, is going to come and fix my laptop. If it is him personally, that would be really super. I'd like to give him the gospel and invite him to church. All right. There are some principles we're going to glean out of this passage, a total of six of them. And we got through the first one last week. All you got last week was one point with some sub points. Jesus repeats his departure message. It's one that he had given back in chapter 7. In chapter 7, he said he was uh, about to depart and that they could not follow him. They uh, puzzled things out back in chapter 7 and they thought, well, maybe he's going to the diaspora. Maybe he's going to the dispersion and he's going to start teaching among the Greeks. Um, This time around, um, they've kind of figured out, well, he's given us this message all over again. Uh, We must have been wrong with our last guess. Uh, Let's guess something else. Maybe he's going to kill himself. And uh, it's interesting. But this time when he does repeat it, it's actually more intensive. Back in chapter 7, and we took the time last week. You can turn back there if you like. But basically he says, I'm leaving. You can't come. This time he says, I'm leaving. You can't come. And, oh, by the way, you're going to die in your sin. So it's intensified from the previous time he gave the message. That's why it says in point one, Jesus repeats his departure message from chapter 7, but intensifies it with what I'm calling a soteriological rebuke. A soteriological rebuke. And that's the content here from verses 21 through 24. You will die in your sin, or you will die in your sins, plural. Both statements are true. Um, we mentioned last week how this could even become a... Um, could become a pattern for our own evangelism if uh, the people you're dealing with uh, keep hearing the same thing over and over again and doesn't seem to be sinking in and you are led by the Lord, uh, you may even provide a soteriological rebuke of sorts uh, to say, uh, well, I guess you're not uh, accepting what you've been told and that's that's your choice to make, but uh, you understand the consequence of that. You're going to die and go to hell. And amazingly, that blunt language gets through to some folks. And I'm not saying that you uh, you approach evangelism that way with everybody you encounter on the street. You don't walk up to strangers on the street and say, you're going to hell, right? Oh, you're born again? I'm sorry, my fault. All right, you're not going to hell. But there could be a time where the Holy Spirit will lead you. And I illustrated with, uh, with one of the most recent salvations around here with uh, some of our newest church members. And, and there had been repeated testimonies and gentle and careful and quiet gospel presentations and then finally the man just lifted his hand and said well i've got nothing else to say to you you're rejecting this you're going to die and go to hell and that was the 
straw that broke the camel's back, as it were, and uh, sunk in. Absolutely sunk in. My old pastor from childhood, Ken Jensen, he, uh, he was an unbeliever. Uh, throughout his childhood, he got married as an unbeliever. He was 18. Dorothy was 16. They got married. And his uh, Lutheran father-in-law, old German, crusty German Lutheran, just told him, Oh, Kenneth, you're, you're going to die and go to hell. And, uh, of course, he mocked it and laughed at it and rejected it, uh, but it haunted him. And for some years, a couple years anyway, uh, I think he was saved at 20 or 21, but it, that that blunt statement from his father-in-law that he was going to die and go to hell. He could never escape that. And then uh, when the evangelist who did lead him to Christ was successful in so doing, uh, it was simply another piece of the puzzle that added together on top of the seeds that had previously been planted. And uh, when he started speaking uh, for Ken Jensen, uh, it was just one more one more item on top of everything else. And he thought, you know what? My father-in-law's right. I am going to go to hell. I better listen to see what this guy has to say. So there is uh, the aspect of a soteriological rebuke, and if you are led to utter such a thing, um, don't uh, don't feel bad. Don't feel bad about anything. If you if you're in fellowship and you had ministry, and, and what you said is what you said, and and if you kill yourself with guilt for a week afterwards, going, oh man, I shouldn't have said it, or I shouldn't have said it that way, uh, just try to relax. That it's not you anyway. So uh, whatever you said, if you did misspeak, um, just Praise God that he's more sovereign than your, um, than your misspeaking. All right. The subpoints under this, this uh, soon departure, actually it's not unique to chapter 7. It's not unique to chapter 8. It gets repeated in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 16. The theme of the soon departure. And uh, we, we read through these passages. We learn from them. We can actually glean some wonderful application because you and I are also in a similar position. We are imminently expecting to be departing we don't know when it's going to be but we know it could be today and so with that as a mindset it gives us a sense of urgency for day after day as long as it is called today we have ministry to uh to accomplish there's work to be done and we may not have a whole lot of time we also uh observe the spotlight here you will die in your sins we took some time to give you vocabulary i'm going to pass by that um, apathinesco in the middle voice you, you die in the middle voice where you accomplish the action of the verb and you also experience the uh, the results thereof and then finally the contrast between below and above when he spotlights that their wisdom was not his that uh, his origin was from above he's a perfect witness for where he's coming from and where he's going quite a contrast and we have similar contrasts as well uh, it was true for him, it's true for us in John 17. More and more so. I think the day you're saved, it's factually true, positionally true. However, but in terms of experience, until you start going through the renewing of your mind process, until you start becoming transformed, your thinking the day after your salvation is still pretty dominated by the world system. It takes time for the, the washing of, of the word to cleanse your mind, to transform your thinking, and, and over time you become more and more Christ-like and less and less cosmos. But it does become true for us if you understand John 17, verses 14 and 16. The last sub-point here highlights, of course, that the one and only remedy for this default, the default condemnation, is faith in Jesus Christ. 
without faith in Jesus Christ, every human being on the planet is condemned. They're born in that lost estate. They are dead by grace. That, in other words, it's nothing they earned, nothing they deserved. They just are born in Adam, and that is their lost estate. The uh, answer is the I am Yahweh message. And when he says here, um, unless, this is the if not the, the statement of if not one and only means, all right, unless you believe that I am, unless you believe ego amy, I am, the object of faith is the messiahship of Jesus Christ, his uh, mission from God the Father. Unless you believe that I am, you are or you will die in your sins. And so there is the only remedy, the only answer for this lost estate is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Which gets us now to our second point. New ground then, verses 25 through 30, point two. By turning his departure warning, by turning his departure warning, I don't like the way I phrased that. Seems awkward. All right, by turning his departure warning into a soteriological rebuke, or by turning it into a soteriological message, interest was sparked to investigate more fully who he actually was. Because he made the departure message, the departure warning, soteriological, that sparked interest. Um, do I think we could do something similar? You bet. We could do something similar. We have a departure message ourselves. And it may be that the rapture can become an instrument to at least spark um, a gospel message to say, you know what, I've been telling you about Jesus, I've been telling you about eternal life, but you keep delaying or you keep ignoring it or you keep blowing it off. But, you know, one of these days I'm not going to be here anymore. We could hear a trumpet this afternoon and we're gone and you're still going to be sitting here thinking about this eternal life thing we're talking about. Say. And, and just let your friends know. Let your unbelieving neighbors know and whatever. Say, you know what, if, if I disappear and my whole family disappears and the house is empty and we're just gone for some inexplicable reason, I told you ahead of time, we could be gone. In which case, your world's about to come to an end. <laughs> All right? The gates of the abyss are about to be unlocked. And this planet it will be flooded with 200 million demons. Doesn't sound fun. That's, of course, assuming you live long enough to see that happen because a third of the earth is getting killed with this first bowl, another third of the earth. It's, it's a gruesome picture. So a departure message can turn soteriological. If uh, you weren't here last week when I explained the term, soter is a savior. So soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. You can make your departure message soteriological. You can make a lot of messages soteriological. In fact, if you're dealing with an unbeliever on a regular basis, it's recommended that you can pretty much turn anything into a soteriological approach at some point. That's one of the uh, tools of the trade that Eventel was producing, how to turn a conversation over to gospel uh, context. Let's read it here, verses 25 through 30 then. And see how the interest was sparked. Because there actually will be some fruit born here. Uh, So again, therefore I said to you from verse 24, You will die in your sins unless you believe that I am. 
you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? So the interest is sparked. He's leaving, but he's telling them unless. When you give an unless message and list only one stipulation to that unless message, that means it's the one and only way. So they want to find out, well, who are you? How are we supposed to believe that I am, that you are, I am. You are Yahweh, Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. Who are you? And Jesus said to them, what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. Specifically, um, you must be saved. If you're not born again, uh, you're going to die and go to hell. That's what he told Nicodemus. That's what he's been saying again and again and again every time this hyper-religious crowd shows up. You need to get saved. Some of the hardest uh, targets you'll ever encounter for witnessing are the religious group that thinks they're already okay because of the church they're a part of or because of how they grew up or because of whatever. They think that they've been religious. They've been a churchgoer. They've done some religious uh, things. Maybe they've been baptized or whatever. A priest sprinkled them or what have you. They think that, yeah, they're okay. Try giving them the gospel and say, no, you must be born again. And a lot of folks who encounter are going to be just as puzzled as Nicodemus was puzzled trying to figure out how to crawl back inside his mother's womb. All right. Well, what do you mean I've got to be born again? I'm in the church, right? Especially that Roman church there. They're convinced they're the, they're the ones that are already there. So uh, again and again and again, starting with Nicodemus in chapter 3 and throughout all these chapters here in John, they need salvation. So when he says, I have many um, things to say to you, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. He's not permitted to go into those other realms yet, because they're not yet past the point of salvation. They did not realize that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. Now that statement is not a quotation from the Lord. The red letter should stop after, if you have a red letter Bible, uh, stops after verse 26. Verse 27 is John's comment 60 years later as he records these or 50 years later, as he records these, uh, these memories. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, again, the ego amy, I am statement. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So he has a departure message and it turns hostile. It turns confrontational. He rebukes them. You're going to die and go to hell. But that sparks an interest. Who are you? All right. Who are you? You may find that the Jesus you're talking about to people you're evangelizing with, they don't have a clue. They're like, tell me more about this Jesus. Because that's not the Jesus they were hearing about. They thought he was a teacher, a good guy, and kind of put to death because religious leaders got jealous or the Romans got scared or whatever else. They don't realize that human agency put him to death, but he volitionally went to that cross in obedience to the Father's plan. And you, you drop that on someone, they're like, what? He let them do it? Oh yeah, he let them do it. He knew who the betrayer was. He, he handed him the sop of bread the night before and said, what you do, do quickly. And called him friend when he showed up in the garden to arrest him. He knew exactly who it was. No. See, that gets attention, right? Who is this guy? It sparks interest in finding out who he is or learning more about him because the actions he, he took were not 
normal for uh, cosmos wisdom that, uh, let's face it, if you know someone's going to stab you, what does this world say? Get them first. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Do unto others before they can do unto you. You know, uh, it's, a, it's a huge humility test. If you know you're going to be betrayed and you know who's going to do it, when they're going to do it, how they're going to do it, and you let it happen, it's because you're being obedient to something else, aren't you? And that's what was the case here with Jesus Christ. All right. Some sub points under this now. This is where I really want to dig into some meat. The testimony of Jesus Christ has remained unchanged since the beginning. And I love the way he says this. They said, who are you? That which I have spoken unto you since the beginning. You know how loaded that answer is? That answer is true on about 30 different levels. I'm going to give you three of them this morning, but it's true in a lot of ways. The testimony of Jesus Christ has remained unchanged since the beginning. We're blessed, of course, to be in the church age where we have a complete canon of Scripture and we have the maximum revelation concerning Jesus Christ up through this present day and age. Uh, millennial saints, however, will have additional information unveiled as before their eyes even as he reigns on the throne of David in Jerusalem as prophets minister, as the uh, uh, teaching ministry of those prophets continues throughout the thousand years. Uh, they will glean additional information that we have not yet been exposed to concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And then on the new heavens and new earth. Uh, inhabitants of the fullness of time will learn even more for a thousand generations of serving and loving and knowing Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, even though details have been added, nobody before Isaiah knew that, that Christ was going to be virgin-born, but so details got added. Nobody before Micah knew that he was going to be born of in Bethlehem. All right, Details have been added, but nothing is different. It's the same uh, the same Christ that has been proclaimed to the world has been proclaimed ever since the seed of the woman promise came in Genesis 3.15. Just additional information has been given, so greater accountability is then expected. So when they ask, who are you? Jesus said to them, that which I have been saying to you from the beginning. Or if, if you take it as a question, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? Answer it yourself. Um, because it should be obvious. Now, when we say the beginning, the beginning of what? What did he mean when he said, since the beginning? He didn't define what beginning he was talking about, and it leaves you to wonder. Was he talking about the beginning of his earthly ministry? Which you can go back to, to John uh, 1 and 2 here and see the, uh, I guess it's chapter 1. Because, yeah, in chapter 2 he's turning water to wine. Chapter 1, he shows up to be baptized, and, and John the baptizer says, Whoa, 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 wait a minute, this is backwards. <laughs> you should be baptizing me, I'm the sinner, you're the Christ. So, you could take that as the beginning. What has he been testifying since the beginning? When he came to be baptized, and the heavens were open, and the Father's voice said, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So, from that point forward, it should be pretty obvious who this guy is. What have I been saying to you since the beginning? The audience here might have taken that to refer to his earthly ministry since the Jordan River baptism. 
All right. For the apostles, that was the case. Qualification for uh, being an apostle was that they were eyewitnesses of his ministry from the beginning, from the baptism at the River Jordan through the resurrection up until that point of time. You can read about that in Acts chapter one when they're replacing uh, Judas Iscariot with Matthias. But here's another possibility. How about of his earthly ministry or his earthly um, residence since the manger birth? Because when he uh, arrived in the manger via uh, Mary's womb, all right, when he entered into this world, was he not proclaimed on that event as well? Were the angels not singing and testifying? Was it not revealed to the shepherds and the wise men? Even, uh, even unbelievers were put on notice. Herod was notified. Satan was notified. Okay. In fact, when you read in Revelation chapter 12 about the dragon that was hunched over the, the woman ready to devour the child, that's the reality of what was behind Herod's attempt to murder the babies. See, the, the dragon in the angelic realm, Satan was trying to murder the Christ in the cradle, manifested through the human agents of Herod murdering the Bethlehem infants. So, proclaimed on in the world, proclaimed by the angels, taken up in glory, the mystery of godliness that we're told about in Timothy. We have that coming up on Sunday mornings. So, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? What has been the consistent testimony since the beginning? Take that as, as you like, because he doesn't truly define what beginning is here. Maybe he had the River Jordan in mind. Maybe he had the manger in mind. They're both true. Or, like I say, there's any number of uh, beginnings. How about in the beginning was the Word? The Word was with God. The Word was God. John 1, 1, the beginning of this very gospel, the testimony of Jesus Christ has remained unchanged since the beginning, the beginning of His eternal ministry since the beginning without beginning. The John 1, 1 beginning, the eternal life conference between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who are you? He is who he is. He is the I am. Interestingly enough, um, when you think about who Jesus is and what Jesus does, he reveals the Father. Has there ever been a time that he's not done that? Is there ever a time when he won't do that? He's continuously doing that. Now, in his incarnation, of course, God became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. That's what God the Son does. God the Son explains, reveals, spotlights, glorifies the Father. But that's not unique to His first advent incarnation. What does Romans 1 tell us about the creation of the universe? It reveals God. Creation itself reveals God. And which member of Trinity was responsible for the work of creation? God the Son, Jesus Christ. So just like we observe in the Incarnation, He's walking the earth, teaching disciples, revealing the Father. That's what He was doing back at creation. Revealing the Father. That's what He's going to do at Second Advent. Reveal the Father. That's what He's going to do for the fullness of time. Reveal the Father. The Son eternally reveals the Father, even as the Father eternally celebrates, glorifies, and magnifies the Son with whom He is well pleased. So the testimony is unchanged. It's the testimony we have the blessing to be able to 
proclaimed to this lost and dying world. Because ultimately, what's our role as ambassadors? 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we have this ministry of reconciliation committed to us. As ambassadors for Christ, we beg you, be reconciled unto God, unto the Father. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The role, the, the event of salvation, the event of redemption and reconciliation is being restored to a relationship with the Father. Made possible, of course, by the work of the Son. So the testimony has remained unchanged since the beginning. Point B. Although Jesus would love to communicate more concerning the things of fallen man, he must remain faithful and speak the things of God. Although Jesus would love to communicate more concerning the things of fallen man, he must remain faithful and speak the things of God. In verse 26. He says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but, but, can't do it. Other work takes precedence. Not my will, but thine be done. The Father has assigned his message. And the message that has to be true, the message he has to present first, is what he's heard from him, that is, this message of revealing the Father through faith in the Son. You must be born again. He must remain faithful and speak the things of God. That's why he's telling him, you're going to die in your sin. You're going to die in your sin. You know, I've had it. Unbelievers, they get curious over little things, right? I've had unbelieving co-workers ask me about prophecy and ask me about things to come. Antichrist and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> None of that matters. You need eternal life. Once you're saved, you can start learning some of those things. But right here, right now, the only thing that concerns you is you're dying and going to hell. Any, anything else in between here and there is just kind of details, really. You're going to die and go to hell. You need Christ. Once you're saved, then you can start growing in truth. You can start growing in uh, in uh, the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And even in terms of um, things concerning you. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. I'm finding that a lot of believers are focused on uh, the Bible. I'm talking about true believers, legitimate, born-again, brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, I won't say whether they're in this church or elsewhere. I'll just keep things anonymous. But... Stop to think about brothers and sisters in Christ. They are saved. They are interested in Bible teaching. But their focus, what they're really interested in Bible teaching is um, how the Word of God can comfort them, how the Word of God can guide them, how the Word of God can uh, solve their problems, how the Word of God can increase their faith, how the Word of God can bless their marriage, how the Word of God can help raise their children, how the Word of God can help them be relaxed over political things, how the Word of God... You see where this is going? Everything's about them. What does the Word of God do for me? And yet, if a passage of Scripture 
spends, for example, like Psalm 119, 176 straight verses in a row that are all about God and how great He is and how majestic and holy and righteous. There are believers that don't get jazzed about that. They say, well, hey, come on, come on, get it back to me. Get it back to my life, my problems, my marriage, my kids, my family, my bills, my health. And, okay, enough already. All right, God's great. Yeah, got it. Now, what's he going to do for me? Okay. And, and that, you know, I, I'm describing that, but that's, that's simply immaturity. That's the nature of a young person. A child is always me first. An adolescent is even more so me first. Um, with maturity comes responsibility and a lot of times that responsibility precludes the uh, exercise of me first because there's other people depending on you. And, uh, and so it goes. I think this pattern here is interesting. He would love to communicate more concerning the things of fallen man. However, he must remain faithful and speak the things of God. They need Christ. They need eternal life. And, and, and if they never get that message, if they never become saved, then he can't even teach any of the rest of it anyway. So put the first things first. In any event, that's verse 26. Out of verse 27 through 29, I find this. In fact, I missed this the first few times I went through the verse. And then it dawned on me. I said, wait a minute. Jesus pointed out that many of his hearers would come to knowledge but still not come to faith even after the cross. Verses 27 through 29. And I never thought of this until this recent study. How many unbelievers have already come to knowledge but have not come to faith? And you'll see what I mean as we look at these verses. And I think it's not just wrangling about words or being nitpicky about stuff. I think it's a, it's a true contrast here verse 27 i'll let you finish writing that down point c write it down while i sip my coffee jesus also pointed out that many of his hearers would come to knowledge but still not come to faith even after the cross john 8 verses 27 through 29 so when he says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the cosmos. Every time you have world in the gospel of John, always, always, always cosmos. Verse 27, they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the father. They did not at that time and they will not for quite some time. Notice verse 28. So Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man. When you lift up the Son of Man, lifting up, of course, is crucifixion. When they put him on a cross, when they deliver him over unto death. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know, gnosko, knowledge. They will have knowledge. You will know that I am. Ego Amy, again, the I am statement. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. So they will know the impact on know, not the impact on believe. So you take that statement, you bring it back up to uh, verse 24. Unless you believe, you will die in your sins. 
this group he's speaking to will know, but unless they believe, they're going to die in their sins. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So it's like he has this, he's got a a large crowd in front of him, and he's speaking about the whole group down the road, uh, six months from this point, when they put him on a cross, then they will know. But even that, that verbal message grabs hold and convicts a small group here. Some, many, came to believe. So many hearers would come to knowledge, but still not come to faith even after the cross. Even after the cross. I think there's, there's tons of unbelievers that have heard it before. They've heard believe on the cross, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross. And they've heard, they've got the information And yet, in the hardness of their heart, or for whatever their reasons are, the blindness of the adversary, or whatever the reasons are, they are not willing, they are not able, they don't believe. They disbelieve. Scripture describes the active verb disbelieve. Pride keeps a lot of people. Pride. Are you, you telling me it's a gift? I can't earn, I can't deserve it, I can't work for it. Who needs that? I'm a good person. I can work my way through. You know, somebody that's got a pride issue in terms of his self-abilities and self-worth, uh, um, he doesn't want to be told that his self-abilities and his self-worth are worthless, that he's just as lost as the next guy. And then Jesus paid for his sins like he paid for the next guy. You don't want to be told that. Free gift? Forget it. I'm working for this. I'm better than this guy. And pride is a barrier to the free gift salvation. I find that to be interesting also. All right. Ironically, point D. A message of condemnation results in salvation for many in the crowd. You're going to die in your sins. And people respond. People responded. A message of condemnation results in salvation for many in the crowd. As I mentioned, uh, pride is a hindrance. And some folks, um, it's a stumbling block. And and folks will not believe. And, And obviously, God knows all these things as the Holy Spirit convicts, as the Father draws, as, of course, God's sovereignty has already elected and chosen. But the um, the provision of the free gift is also a benefit to, uh, and even an, an encourager, to the humble, to the one who knows he's worthless. <laughs> this is where in a lot of cases prison ministries I go to Huntsville once a month sometimes a prison ministry can bear an amazing amount of fruit because uh, in, in many instances you've got folks there who know that they're a bunch of no good criminal sinning jerks you know they know they're worthless they know you tell them they're going to go to hell they say yeah you're right I deserve it I'm going to hell the things I've done I should go to hell And when you have a humility to recognize a lack of any kind of merit, any kind of false pride, any kind of uh, self-promotion, you can find fertile ground for a free grace gift to say, doesn't matter. 
It's not what you've done. It's not what you've earned and deserved. Your righteousness will never get you there. Only the righteousness of God himself. That's a gift of salvation. So you can have, uh, so I say ironically in, in the point, point D, ironically, um, but it's only ironic if you look at it from a world viewpoint. From God's viewpoint, there's nothing ironic about it. It's perfectly natural. As far as God's concerned, it makes sense that you have to have his righteousness to enjoy his presence forever. A message of condemnation results in salvation for many in the crowd. All right, now this, we're at the point now where some confusion sets in, and I've read some of the best commentaries out there, and some of the, even some of the real good ones, um, don't really know how to handle the next verse, or how to handle the next section of verses, because we're left off with, he spoke these things, many came to believe in him, and then we have Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, and then we have their reaction in verse 33 with they answered him. And a lot of folks don't know what to do with the they answered him. Is the they the believers or is the they still the crowd? Is it the same they that we've had all through the chapter? It's the the multitudes, the crowds, even though the precise words were meant for a subset within the larger group. Okay. And that's how I'm going to teach it and how my understanding uh, goes here. And, and I'll just share that with you here this morning. Um, let's read through it and then I'll help you see who they are, right? You always want to know who's they. You know what they say. Don't eat anything with tomatoes on it right now because they say that tomatoes are all poison, salmonella or whatever, right? You know what they say. Well, who are they? Every time somebody tells me about what they say, you know what they say. I just, I'm sick of hearing about what they say. I'm going to meet they someday and they can listen to what I say. <laughs> so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. Okay, Now, there's no indication, of course, that he... Uh, picked them out or chose them out or separated them and said, all right, you guys come sit over here and then threw all the unbelievers out. All the testimony is that the multitudes are still right here. All right. But his next utterance, his next message, everybody's going to hear it, but it's only intended for the particular ears that he intends it for. For the rest, it's just, you know, right over the head, spiritually discerned. They don't even have ears to hear it. I could do the same thing right here. I could do the same thing right here and say, all right, my next sentence is for the grandmothers in the, uh, in the audience. I'm not forcing everybody to leave the room. If you're not a grandmother, get out of here, lock the door. But what I'm saying is, is that this next statement is only for the grandmothers. Okay, so sorry, Radley, you just have to <laughs> sit there and you're not a grandmother. You'll never be a grandmother. This next statement is not for you. Okay, you're still allowed to hear it. But it's not for your edification, for your growth, for your benefit. Make sense? So when he says, he was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you're truly disciples of mine. Obviously, that statement does not apply to this crowd of unbelievers that's fighting them every step of the way. But for this small group that just got saved a moment ago, that came to faith because of the last message, now he wants to urge them, Okay, you're saved now. You've got to grow. You've got to abide in the Word of God. 
So I think it helps us to recognize that the multitudes are still present, even though the the follow-up message to salvation doesn't pertain to them. It only pertains to these brand new believers in this context. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. This is the major emphasis in a Bible church that we're happy you're saved, but we're not happy to stop there because the father's not happy to stop there. Are you saved? Great. Glad to hear it. Let's grow. We've got to grow in the Word of God. Otherwise, you're not a disciple. And you will know the truth. The truth will make you free. <laughs> I love this verse. I love it. I love teaching it. We're going to teach it today. Uh, we'll probably run out of time today, so we'll teach it more fully next week. Uh, I love this verse. Uh, I hate what unbelievers do with it. You ever heard an unbeliever quote this verse? Does it make you want to slap them? They say, that's my verse. That's, that's, that's for believers. That's for those abiding in the Word of God. Don't misuse the Word of God. It's blasphemy. Know the truth. The truth will set you free. I don't even know the first thing about freedom. All right. So they answered him, We're not, We are Abraham's descendants. We have never yet been a slave to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? We have a confrontational response that's full of lies, that's at odds with the reality of the truth, right? Because they've been slaves. They, that's how they got started. They were in Egypt. They, they became a nation of slaves and then were provided freedom. And then they were slaves after that, repeatedly to the Philistines. They were carried away to Assyria and to Babylon. In fact, if you total up all the time, I, it's probably pretty close. No, I don't know. But the, the time they spent as a free nation with their own king versus the time they've spent in slavery. Between Egypt, the Philistines, the Amorites, the uh, Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and even right here, when they're saying, we're not slaves, we've never been enslaved to anybody. They're under the yoke of Rome. They don't have a son of David on the throne of David in Jerusalem. See? It's like an unbeliever telling you, he doesn't need salvation, he's okay. All right. So you recognize that the, the answer in verse 33 is uh, a problem. It's, it's false. It's argumentative. It's uh, negative volition being expressed verbally. And so they is not the uh, Jews who had believed him. They is a continuation of the unbelieving mob crowd that uh, continues to dispute everything he says. If he said the sky was blue, they'd argue about it. Just because he said it. All right. Well, how do you say that? You didn't go to our school. What do you know about the blue sky? Rabbi Hillel says the sky is green. You know. He didn't really, but they don't care. They just want to dispute everything out of Jesus' mouth. <laughs> All right. So, Jesus' message, point three here. Jesus' message of truth and freedom was meant specifically for the believing ones within the crowd, but was verbally responded to by the predominantly unbelieving ones. It was verbally responded to by the predominantly unbelieving ones. Does that make sense? So he had a large audience and he had words that were intended specifically for only the believing ones within there. And yet it was the crowds then that the predominantly unbelieving crowds then that responded verbally with their outrage in verse 33. Jesus' message of truth and freedom 
Interestingly enough, the truth will set you free is given to believers who just a verse before were uh, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. They received eternal life. They are going to go to heaven when they die. However, they still have not begun the truth process of disciples to have um, experiential freedom from the ongoing sin battle which is what we have described in the subsequent verses here. The the freedom he's talking about is the slavery to personal sins that uh, believers fight from the point of time of their salvation to the point of time of their promotion. So this message was meant specifically for the believing ones, but was verbally responded to by the predominantly unbelieving ones. All right. Now, as I mentioned, you open 20 different commentaries and you'll find different understandings here. Um, several take this approach, as I do, but uh, there's others, though, that feel that, no, uh, since he was saying to those who believed him and since they answered him, then these have to be the believers that are answering. And they insist that it must be the believers that are answering. Okay. And... Um, which in English, I guess, makes sense, but it's not absolutely required in the um, text. I'm using a borrowed machine here, but this should still work. What verse am I looking at? I'm looking at they answered him, 33. They answered him. We'll see what kind of books... Mr. Beveridge puts on his uh, toolbar here. Do this one. See, one of the interesting things in English, for instance, if uh, if I said, if, uh, if we say Pastor Bob stood up and spoke to his wife, right? And then some kind of statement. And then we have another sentence that said, she answered him. Well, who's the she? Yeah, obviously. Okay. That's the feature of our language. However, we don't have they in, uh, in this text where they answered him. We just simply have answered him. Who answered him? It doesn't say the ones he spoke to, but an answer was made. In this case, it's a third person plural. So it is a group. It's not a single answer. It is a third person plural. And because we don't like just simply, it's not cool in English to just simply say, answered him. We put a they in front of there. They answered him. But a masculine plural group of individuals answered him. And the masculine plural group of individuals in this context could be either the, um, the uh, ones that believe. Now, here we're told who he speaks to. Elegant, he spoke, therefore, Jesus spoke to the believing ones, the ones who believed in him of the Jews. That's who he spoke to. And so there the object is spelled out, the believers of the crowd. But as far as who answered, we're not told who answered. 
We're just told the answer was made right there. So, in any event, there are some folks, though, that are absolutely insistent that the verbal response was the same group that he'd spoken to. So, he's speaking to these brand new believers, and they're responding negatively with uh, a critical statement. Okay? Now, I suppose that is a realm of possibility, because a brand new believer just saved this morning doesn't have any doctrine to know what he's really talking about. However, um... The confrontation, actually, this one's the, one of the most prolonged ones of all. And uh, the group that he's speaking to here, when he, whoever they are that answer him, he answers them right back and calls them of your father, the devil. All right. And so whoever they are that answer him, uh, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never yet been enslaved. All right. Somebody's calling me. Forget that. Um we're, you know, so then he answers them in verse 34, and down through this context, we get to 44, you are of your father the devil. So we're dealing with unbelievers that he's speaking to. So at some point we switch from the believers that out of verse 30, the ones that he speaks to in verse 31, back to unbelievers again. And that's why I think the switch takes place in verse 33, that the crowd that responds is the uh, predominantly unbelieving ones. In other words, they jump all over a message that wasn't even for them to begin with. And I think we see the same thing today. Unbelievers today jump all over, you won't know the truth, the truth will set you free. They jump all over that today. It's not even meant for them. All right. Otherwise, you know, if, if these are unbelievers, then you have to, and a lot of the commentaries try to do this, to say, well, okay, they came to believe in him in verse 30, but it was the wrong kind of belief. It was the wrong kind of faith. It wasn't saving faith. They, 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 they believe the truth of his word, but they weren't really saved. It was not saving faith. And, and they kind of have to work a, their own private definition of belief into verse 30 and verse 31 in order to keep them unbelievers who are of their father the devil down in verse 44. I think it's much more natural to see the switch of audience, the switch of venue in verse 33 to see the unbelievers dominate the uh, conversation at this point. All right. For example, if I was to address the grandmothers here and then all of a sudden Radley jumps up and starts tearing into me for what I told the grandmothers. Even the great-grandmothers. All right. Now, um, some sub-points here. And we'll pick up on this next week because we're down to our last six minutes and I can either let you go five minutes early or keep you 20 minutes late. What do you want? Uh, let's see. I don't have time to keep you late today, actually. Michael Dell's coming. Did I tell you that? Michael Dell's coming to my house to fix my laptop. Or probably somebody that works for him. He's, he may be too busy to personally come and replace my motherboard. Believing in Christ turns an unbeliever into a believer. Make sense? This is the work of evangelism. And, and I'm expressing it in simple ways. Okay? Believing in Christ turns an unbeliever into a believer. For me, it was September of 1973. For you, whatever, whenever that day was. This is the work of evangelism. But don't confuse that with the Great Commission. 
Don't confuse that with what we're really supposed to be doing here. So point B. Abiding in the Word of God turns a believer into a true disciple. Don't think that believer and disciple are interchangeable. They are not. Faith in Christ turns an unbeliever into a believer, but does not make him a disciple. Abiding in the Word of God turns a believer into a true disciple. It's a conditional statement if you abide in my word. Most believers do not, sadly. Abiding in the word of God turns a believer into a true disciple. When we come back next week, we'll discuss the verb meno, to remain, to dwell, to abide. We'll discuss the term methetes, but it comes from the verb manthano, to learn. It's the, uh, it's the receiving end of didasco to teach. Didasco teaches, Manthano learns. And if you are a learner, and by the way, you're not simply a learner by being in the same room as a teacher. Okay? A teacher can teach. Jesus is the greatest teacher who ever lived. And a lot of the people that heard him never learned a thing. Teaching is an active verb accomplished by the one so doing, but learning is also an active verb accomplished by the one so doing. So uh, to be a learner, to be one who actively learns, that's what a disciple is. And in order to be a disciple, you've got to abide in the Word of God. You've got to live in the Word of God. And uh, as I say, we'll pick up on that next week. But let me give you a clue. The Great Commission is to make disciples. The Great Commission is not to make believers. The Great Commission is not to give the gospel so that unbelievers get saved. That could be as part of it, but the Great Commission is make disciples. That means if you're face to face with an unbeliever, yes, you get them saved and then you get them in the Word. But if you're dealing with a regenerate person who's not in the Word, Great Commission applies to them as well. Get them in the Word. Great Commission is to make disciples. And that's where I think um, we'll, we'll focus in Matthew 28 next week and, and get a handle on this. Um, then we've got some fun stuff about knowing the truth. Knowing the truth. We saw this in 1 Timothy. God desires for all men to be saved, first of all, and to come to the knowledge of the truth, the second one. Okay? And what I'll tease you with here this morning, but we'll deal with it next week. Knowing the truth is vivid. Knowing the truth, you can approach the idea of knowing the truth academically. You can approach the idea of knowing the truth spiritually. And you can even approach the idea of knowing the truth intimately. Using the language of Scripture. Where knowing is sexual. It is the intimacy of knowing your spouse. And the Scripture uses that expression, that terminology, for knowing the Word. Cleaving unto the Word of God, even as you leave your father and mother and cleave to your husband or to your wife. And Scripture uses those terms. So we'll address it there as well. It's, uh, we are the bride of Christ. Who is the Word? Jesus Christ. So if you are to know the Word... You are to cleave unto your husband as the bride to Christ. 
So that gives you something to think about over the next seven days, 168 hours. 167 hours from now, one week minus one hour, we'll come back together and uh, examine what does it mean to know the truth so the truth sets us free. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.